It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Jeffrey Seller is the producer of Hamilton, the hip-hop musical about America's founding fathers. The hugely successful Broadway show has earned a Grammy, Pulitzer Prize, and several Tony Awards. But for Seller, it's one of many plays he's produced. Still, he says, he's no genius. I'm a nurturer. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a critic. I'm a guy who says you can do better. But I am not the kind of creator manifested by William Shakespeare or Mozart or Lin-Manuel. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. It was held in June 2017 in Aspen, Colorado. Seller's path to success didn't start with a silver spoon. He grew up near Detroit, Michigan in a family he says acted middle class, but was not middle class. A Pell Grant helped him attend the University of Michigan. He eventually moved to New York City in the mid-1980s and began his career in theater. Four of Seller's productions have won Tony Awards for Best Musical. In 2002, he produced Boz Lerman's version of Puccini's La Boheme. It was a reimagining of the opera as a rock musical uncovering the AIDS crisis in New York City. In this intimate conversation, Seller talks about growing up as an adopted child and his pursuit later to find his birth parents. He goes into the early, surprising success of Hamilton and how he worked to bring the production to life. Here's his conversation with Carlisle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. Rubenstein chairs the board for the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. He begins the conversation. So, um, but let's start off by, let me ask you this question. Um, it is said that Lin-Manuel was going on vacation and he happened to buy at a bookstore uh, on the, in the airport, I guess on the way to the vacation, a book called Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Have you ever thought, had he not bought that book, how your life would be different? <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, I make musicals. And my life, that has been my professional mission in my life. And um, my relationship with Lynn started when I met him um, shortly after he got out of college at Wesleyan and had a one-act musical called In the Heights. And um, it was through that process of working with Lynn, working with his collaborator, Thomas Kale, that we ultimately got In the Heights to Broadway. And in many ways, when Lynn says, this is what I want to do, my job is to say yes. So when Lynn said, I'm going to work on Hamilton, my job was to follow. Okay. Now, it has been said that by many people that he's a genius to have uh, written the, the lyrics and done all the things that have led to this great success and changed the course of Broadway's history and also American history in many ways because people care more about American history than they probably did before. But you're the producer, you're the person who put it together. Do you ever say, well, geez, he gets all the credit for being the genius, what about me? You don't get any resentment about the fact that people aren't paying as much attention to you as they are about him? <laughs> well, I get to stay at the St. Regis, okay. so I'm feeling pretty good. All right, okay. but, <laughs> but, but, you know, um, I, I reserve the word genius for few men and women who have lived through history. Um, Mozart was a genius. Um, I don't know that there are that many geniuses. I am not a genius. Thomas Edison was a genius. 
Um, and I think Lin-Manuel is absolutely um, stepping up at the bat and showing he might be a genius. But um, I'm a nurturer, I'm a cheerleader, I'm a critic, um, I'm a guy who says you can do better, but um, I am not the kind of creator um, manifested by William Shakespeare or Mozart or Lin-Manuel. So how frequently do you get asked about tickets? Um, <laughs> I mean, um, everybody wants tickets, but you know, the VIPs, I mean, the most prominent people in the country of the world, they call you up and say, can I get tickets for free? Do people ask, expect to get them for free? Fortunately, um, the culture has changed, and um, now they at least do not ask for it. The only person in my career who consistently asked for tickets for free and expected them, and I was too intimidated to contradict her, was Elaine Stritch. Okay. <laughs> And, and what I got in return was that she'd call up for tickets, and I'd say, just give her the tickets. Right. And um, uh, you know, sadly, she died before Hamilton, but she asked for tickets for every other show prior to that. And um, you know, her family owned Bay's English muffins, so I would get a case of English muffins for every pair of right, tickets so, I gave to Elaine. For, for people who, before we get into the more substantive things about what you do, uh, for people who actually want to go see the show, um, what is the best way to, to get tickets and not pay $10,000 a ticket? What is the best way? Um, we sell our tickets for um, a reasonable Broadway rate, whether it's 189 bucks or 200 bucks. Um, when we put them on sale, we need for our theater goers to go that minute and buy their tickets. And if they go that minute and buy their tickets, they will succeed. Um, what happens in this new marketplace in which StubHub and VividSeat and SeatGeek have um, made a huge impact is that they go that first day because it's in their best economic interest and they buy up as many of those tickets as they can. So if we as consumers don't act quick, then they're going to wind up with those tickets and then we're going to have to go to them and pay many multiples of the face value in order to get those tickets. So we've worked hard um, at my office to, number one, try to slow down the stub hubs and the vivid seats and the seat geeks of the world by at least taking away their automatic robots that go online and buy tickets. We've actually passed legislation both on the state level in New York State and on the federal level that President Obama signed. It was the only bipartisan legislation that I think may have passed um, the Congress <laughs> last year, in fact, that uh, both the Republicans and the, and the Democrats uh, in the Senate supported this anti-bots legislation. So one, slow down the bots. Two, reach out to our consumers and give them advance notice. Tickets are going on sale for the next block. Go there that day, buy your tickets. Right, can I often notice that uh, President Obama or other prominent people will go and they must call at the last minute. So you must have some tickets in your pocket. And so at the last minute, if the, President Obama doesn't call, who gets those tickets? Well, here's the good news, that yes, we are always holding tickets in our pocket, as is the restaurant you want to get into that won't let you in tonight, as is that hotel. Um, and if President Obama does not call, um, then often those tickets go on sale at 6 o'clock before that evening show. And if you are the lucky person who's standing in line, you will wind up with row G101 and 103. 
And do you get people calling up and saying, I need to speak to Jeffrey. I'm his high school friend, and don't you know who I am? Do they get, you get a lot of those, and people <laughs> call up and say, I'm his best friend, and you don't really know who they are? Um, it happens a little bit, but um, I act like I know them. Okay, all right. So how has your life changed? Now, I, I, I want to say one okay. more thing about how do you get tickets, because this is important to me, and it's important to the ecosystem of Broadway, which is that we know our tickets, while I may say are reasonable to this room, are not reasonable to many people. There are many people who will never be able to afford a ticket for $189 or $229. And in every single theater in which we are performing, and then today that means Chicago, it means San Francisco and in New York, there will be 45 to 50 seats that are lotteried off <clears throat> on the internet for $10 each. That's 20,000 tickets in New York, per year that go to consumers who pay $10 and they sit in the first two rows. Okay, well, now you started that with, uh, with rent. I you did. You came up with the idea of rush tickets. <laughs> yes. And initially people were standing in line for all night, so now you have a lottery. Is that, how do you make sure that the robots aren't buying the lottery tickets? Uh, well, because um, there are computer mechanisms to stop it, <clears throat> and then the person who wins the ticket, has to show up in person at the box office, prove who they are, and then only then do they receive the ticket. So through that live interaction between you know, 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock, we can verify that the winner is the person who receives the ticket. I think you might be right, because um, I, I did go to see Hamilton the last night that Lin-Manuel performed, and uh, I went on StubHub, and I, um, I actually saved money because uh, groups had often asked me if I want to come see it, and I realized it would probably involve a five or $10 million contribution to their organization <laughs> at some point. So by paying $10,000 a ticket, I actually saved money. But, um, but I, I got, you know, I had a whole row in the third, uh, third row, and you know, it was great. But in the first two rows, I said, these people don't look like they can afford these seats. How did these people get these seats? Because they looked like they were kind of, you know, scruffy people who just were in the Greyhound bus station. All of a sudden, they're sitting in the front row. Now I know, right? Yeah, and, and uh, funny story about rent. <clears throat> My, my then business partner, Kevin McCollum, and I started that lottery for 20 bucks, first two rows at rent in 1996. And here's the truth. When we produced rent, we couldn't afford a full price ticket to a Broadway musical. Um, so we invented that policy in many ways to take care of us. And um, uh, when we first did it, it was a live lottery. You would, it was first, you know, when we first did it, you, it was first come, first serve. So if you showed up at six o'clock, the first 14 people or 16 or seven, it was, I think it was 17 people uh, would get a pair and that was 34 seats. Um, within a year of rent being on Broadway, we were on 41st Street before the New York Times moved into 41st Street, before Disney moved into 41st Street. It was pretty rough. 41st between 7th and 8th Avenue where the Port Authority was. And um, one year in, we would have three lines going simultaneously on Fridays. Friday's night's performance, a line down the block. Saturday afternoon, another line down the block. And Saturday night, and kids were sleeping over with sleeping bags in front of the Nederlander Theater. We became so fearful that someone was going to get hurt um, and that it would be our responsibility that we switched from the live system uh, where it was first come, first serve to a lottery. And then for many, many years, we did a live lottery where literally you'd put your name in a hat and someone would pull it out and people would scream and shout and be happy that they won. And now we've gone to a, um, 
um, an online lottery, which enables people who can't get to the theater to still be able to enter. So uh, you were a successful producer, and we'll go through that uh, shortly. But Hamilton has put you at a different level in terms of fame and wealth. So I assume that your life has changed a little bit, or has all the fame and wealth not changed? You're exactly the same person you were 10 years ago. Well, now I don't want to call anybody to get tickets it's for some other show because, because they're going to ask me right, for a 5 right, to $10 right. million dollar donation. Right, 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 so right. I think, so I guess I'm going to have to go to StubHub. Right. Well, that, <laughs> have you bought whole, all the, the, the toys that people are wealthy buy? You have airplanes and boats and a lot of art, or what have you done with all this success? Um, I, no. I'm a kid from Oak Park, Michigan. Okay. I, um, I uh, come from a family that acted middle class, but was not middle class. Um, I went to the University of Michigan thanks to the Pell Grant. And I'll always be that kid even if my bank account gets bigger. So let's talk about your background. Um, it is unusual, as we've talked about uh, before. Um, you are, um, you grew up in Oak, in, in Oak Park. Oak Park, which, which is, is not Oak Park, Illinois, where Frank Lloyd Wright right, built right. beautiful homes. Right, it's part of Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Your father um, was, a, a, as you described it, a, a businessman who successfully was going down, not going up, right? Yes, so you're, rapidly and um, wholeheartedly. And you are adopted. Yes, sir. And you had two siblings who were not adopted, so you were in between. Yeah. So what was that like? Um, in many ways, I was the, um, the golden child. You know, I was the child that came from outside the family and um, uh, was uh, like many young boys who grow up to be gay. I was the perfect child who pleased my parents came home when I was supposed to, and pretty much did everything right. You know, we could do hours on what it means to be adopted, and when I was a, a child, I was always the chosen child. And it felt very good to be the chosen child, and um, my parents loved to say, it makes no difference. And it was a very loving thing to say in many ways, but here's the other thing. It does make a difference. And what I had to contend with as an adult is that um, it does make a difference. And I was left as an adult with an existential question, which is, where do I come from? And that is a question that all adoptees have to wrestle with. And what I learned as an adult through my own examination and through being an adoptive parent. I am the adoptive parent of two children who are uh, now 14 and 13 years old. Is that adoption is beautiful, it's historic, Moses was adopted, and it is an enormous gain and an enormous loss. And only by being able to hold both of those feelings do we honor the adoptee? Do we honor the um, biological parent? And do we honor the adoptive parent? Now, um, some people who are adopted say that their parents are the people that raise them, and that's their parents. And, but other people say uh, they want to know who their uh, biological parents are. Some people do, and some people don't. You tried to identify who your biological parents were, and did you succeed? Um, yes, I, I, I was of the first um, 
um, opinion for the first 35 years of my life. My parents are my parents, and that's that. And then I realized it, it, that something was stirring up inside me. And, um, and I think that when I had two children, it really started stirring up inside me. So I went on um, that mission to find out where do I come from and who do I look like. And um, I uh, used the state of Michigan, um, Oakland County court system in order to do it through the legal manner. And in fact, I discovered my biological mother, my biological father, they were both deceased. And out of that, I discovered um, brothers who uh, I'm still in touch with, and I uh, discovered first cousins um, on my father's side. And um, it was, it brought me peace. Right. So were your... And they asked for tickets too. Right. <laughs> and were your biological parents... So I just have more people asking for tickets. Were, were your biological parents Jewish? This is your first cousin from Cleveland. Can we come see him? Were they Jewish? Yeah. Were your biological... Okay, here's the fun thing. My biolog I'm Jewish. My biological father uh, was a Lithuanian Jew. And it turns out that my bio the Seller family is a Jewish family from Lithuania. So that was an wow. interesting uh, um, concurrence. And my biological mother was Irish Catholic. And they're looks this face. Okay. Yeah. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. If you're a loyal listener of Aspen Ideas To Go, you may remember hearing Jeffrey Seller in a previous episode. He was featured in last year's Aspen Ideas Festival Takeover series. He weighed in on the divisiveness in Washington saying, it's nothing new. I think what I learned in the process of developing Hamilton over the last six years is that if you look at the founding of our country, it was always dysfunctional. And political actors were, going back to our earliest days, vicious toward one another. There's a link to the episode in our show notes. Now back to today's show. Here's David Rubenstein. Let's talk a moment about Hamilton and um, uh, that play and that phenomenon. So when you had done things with Lin-Manuel before, he called you up and said, I have an idea about a founding father, and I'm going to do it in hip-hop. And what was your initial reaction? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, you know, I did La Boheme in the East Village where tuberculosis became AIDS. Um, so it didn't rattle me. But the truth of it is, is that Lynn imagined it initially as an interim project in which he could make a concept album and express all of his hip hop tendencies in the truest form and not have to um, be a slave to the theatrical narrative. And he started, he wrote one song. And in fact, that was the song that he performed at the White House in the spring of 2009. Um, and he said, it's my next project. But in fact, all he had was that song. And he wrote about one song a year for about three years. And then ultimately, it was his collaborator and our colleague, Thomas Kale, who said to him, hey, uh, if you, instead of writing one song a year, why don't we get you going one song a month? And then we'll put these together and see what we have. And once we put together, um, eight of those songs in succession, it was obvious that in fact, he was writing a theatrical narrative 
with a beginning, right. a middle, and then potentially, well, of course, an end. Now, explain to people who may not know what a producer in Broadway does. Because a producer in Broadway is different than a producer in Hollywood. In Hollywood, you have the studios, and they're often uh, more powerful than sometimes the producer. And the producer in, Hollywood, in Broadway, you are everything. You make all the financial decisions. You do the hiring. Is that right? Yeah. I, when people ask that, which is a, always a good question, I say it's like being the CEO of your own company. Um, it's like the guy who is the CEO of Starbucks, who started Starbucks as uh, one chain or one store and then grew it. So, um, of course, nominally, my job is to raise the money. Everybody knows that. And that's a very small part of the job. Um, I, it's, a, it's a sales job. And what I mean by that is that I have to sell from beginning to end, whether that is after, but we'll go to that in a minute. Um, it's a job of hiring every single artist who's on the team. Um, it's a job of saying, if I put this director together with this choreographer, I think that what they make together will be something in which the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. My job is chemist in many ways. Um, and then after I start putting that chemistry together and we have a show, then I must sell it to investors. Then I must sell it to maybe a not-for-profit theater that would host us for our first production. Um, then I might have to sell it to the Broadway landlord um, whose theater I want to rent. Then I have to sell it to group sales agencies um, who I'm hoping will buy tickets for um, their large group parties. Then I ultimately have to sell it to the end consumer. And then that's the job um, to keep it going as long as I can. Uh, for people here who say, well, geez, people who invested in Hamilton are going to make a fair amount of money, I guess. Um, they might want to be an investor in a Broadway play. Is that a really good way to make money, investing in Broadway plays? <laughs> no. Right. Cause, cause, um, uh, of every Broadway play or musical that is capitalized, 20% earn back their money. You know, we have a, a word, hit and flop. And everybody uses these words. That was a hit, it was a flop. And a lot of shows get called a hit just because they're running on Broadway, but they are not hits. A hit means one thing, which is that the show earned back its capital. Can you imagine in your business, David, if that was the barometer of success that all you did was earn back your capital? And what I'm saying is only 20% of the shows just earn back their capital. So when you went to people on Hamilton, people presumably who've done business before and said, I got this great idea, Lin-Manuel's a genius or close to a genius and, and we're gonna do a hip hop play about Alexander Hamilton, what was their reaction? Was it hard to raise money? I know. It sounds like it might have been, but in truth, because we would present to them eight of his songs, all you had to do was present two of the songs, and literally people were begging us okay. to put money so into it. So if somebody put in a million dollars at the beginning, uh, when all is said and done, will they wind up making 10 million, 50 million, 100 million? They'll easily multiply by 10 their initial investment. I don't know if it will be 20 at the end. Or okay. I, I, you know, the, uh, the, we don't know. Hamilton will celebrate its second anniversary on Broadway in a month. So um, where uh, it's going to end, I don't know. But to put it in some perspective, um, I think there was a moment in time where the Phantom of the Opera was the most successful and profitable entertainment venture in the history of mankind more profitable than any movie had ever been, more profitable than any single record or TV show. And certainly, um, there are now a handful of shows 
Phantom of the Opera, Wicked, Mamma Mia, The Lion King, um, that have all earned in profits well over a billion dollars. So would any of your investors like to sell their position today? <laughs> no, no, no. So, um, so when you uh, put the, you got the investors, but then you have to do the casting. Now, um, Hamilton and everybody then that he was dealing with were white Caucasians. The idea of having non-white Caucasians, was that controversial or did Lin-Manuel insist on it? Did you think it would work? Um, it was director Thomas Kale's idea. But it was an innate idea because when Lynn picked up this book, Alexander Hamilton, and just imagine how happy Ron Chernow is today, <laughs> talking about airplanes, right? Um, Lynn looked at the character of Alexander Hamilton, and he heard all of his favorite hip-hop artists um, in his head as he was following the life of Alexander Hamilton. So the idea that these would be African-Americans, that these would be immigrants, that these would be um, Latinos, was um, kind of embedded in this notion that he was telling the story of um, yesterday with the tools of today. And that made it innately obvious that you would need um, people of color people who have the best facility with hip hop and rap music playing those parts. And Ron himself was a skeptic. Ron was like, whoa, you're going to have uh, who played George Washington? And as soon as Ron Chernow saw the very first little read through we did in a room as big as this stage, Ron Chernow was a um, convert. Another way of saying what you're saying is that white Jewish people couldn't have done hip hop, you're saying. <laughs> hip hop. Baseball. Right, a lot of things. Okay. So. Uh, Sandy Koufax, Sandy Koufax. I know, I know. All right, so when you, um, you we got the play together, and then you, did, you went off Broadway for a while. You were, you started I'm just trying to think if Eminem is Jewish. He's not I'm Jewish. Um, anyway, go So on. you went off Broadway initially, right? Yeah. And was it apparent from the first night that it was going to be a success, or did it have some word of mouth before you knew it was really going to be a big success? Hamilton was unlike any other show I have ever produced in that. We did a workshop for our own purposes in May of uh, 14. And um, we did it in a 150-seat theater on 52nd Street, the 52nd Street Project in New York City. We used their space. We had 150 seats. Um, and what we did is we did that workshop so that um, director Tommy Kale and choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler could start to physicalize the show which means get it from the music stands, where an actor's just sitting at a music stand, up on its feet, and figure out how are we going to stage this? How is it going to exist in space? So we did this um, four times, which means 600 people got to see it. And many of them were family, friends, some industry people. And something happened over those four performances. Because when the public theater put it on sale, there was not one article in any publication. And they put it on sale in, uh, six months out in July of, I guess it was 13. Uh, no, it was 14. I'm right about that. And they put it on sale, and they started selling tickets in a way in which they have never sold tickets before. Hamilton was sold out at the public theater before the first preview. Um, something happened with those 600 people, and it's the power of 600 people when they are passionate about something. 
which is that they started talking to their friends and then we sold out 20,000 seats before we ever had a preview. You are tuned in to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, a 10-day convening of scholars, artists, scientists, political decision makers, and more in Aspen, Colorado. The 2018 festival is just around the corner. Starting June 21st, you can watch and listen to the discussions on our website, aspenideas.org. Many of the onstage talks will be featured later this year here in the podcast. Find out more about the festival at aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's show. David Rubenstein. Right before it opened on uh, Off-Broadway, I, uh, I won an award by some group in, in New York, and it was called the Alexander Hamilton Award. Yeah. And the sponsor said they have a person who's going to do a play on Alexander Hamilton. Can he come by and sing a few songs? And I said, okay, I, I guess it's all right. So he came along and he sang, it was Lin-Manuel. And I said afterwards, you know, I don't think that's going to really make it. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's why I don't invest yeah, in David, Broadway. you could have invested. Right, right. I could have. I should have. Right. I should have. Anyway, so how do you, uh, now you, it's, it's successful on Broadway. Now you're open in Chicago and San Francisco. How did you pick those cities um, as opposed to, you know, Washington, D.C.? Sure. A population base. It's, it's a very simple equation. Um, after New York, Chicago has the largest metropolitan population that supports and attends theater. Chicago is the only city in America that can potentially support a show for multiple years as opposed to multiple weeks or multiple months. So um, it was um, obvious to me that with our success on Broadway, we could open in Chicago and potentially play there for several years. And in fact, that's what we're doing. And, and, and so you went to San Francisco, that's bigger than LA or? Uh, San Francisco, in fact, is a smaller metropolitan area than LA, but San Francisco over the last 20 years has also proven that through a combination of their um, local population, and of course, when you include the whole San Jose area, it explodes, and through tourism, they can also okay. support a show for a long time. So, um, when Lin-Manuel writes the songs, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a performer um, because uh, you know, the person who wrote Phantom of the Opera, he wasn't performing. Correct. So was it awkward to say to Lin-Manuel, maybe you're not the right person to be in this show? Or, or how did you deal with the fact that he's the writer and he's the creator, but he also wants to be in the show? Yes. <laughs> yes, you say yes. But we had experience with this because, in fact, um, when Lynn wrote In the Heights, his first Broadway musical, um, he wrote it as a sophomore project at Wesleyan. And in fact, he was not in it the first time. He directed it, I think. And then um, when we started to develop that show in New York, it was just obvious that he needed to be the narrator of In the Heights. In so many ways, it was his story. Um, so uh, he had a great time being okay. the narrator, Usnavi in In the Heights. And in some strange way, I think that when he read Alexander Hamilton, I don't know if he would say this, but I think he looked at Alexander Hamilton and said, that's me. But he also may have said, that's my father, because there are great uh, parallels between his father's um, 
life journey in Alexander Hamilton's, although his father's with a happy ending. But I thought Aaron Burr was a part he was willing to play as well. Did he consider playing Aaron Burr at one No, point? in fact not, because um, for those of you that know the score, all of the most challenging and beautiful music belongs to Aaron Burr, and Lynn knows that's not his wheelhouse. So he always wanted, A, he says, I wrote the best songs for Aaron Burr, and he knew he needed a fantastic singer to be able to play those. And casting, was it hard to get people to want to be in that cast, or everybody thought it was be a hit from the beginning? Um, when Broadway artists started to hear the music, they wanted right. to be in Hamilton. And initially, I thought the play was supposed to be called Hamilton Mixtape. Is that right? Yeah, it was called Hamilton the Mixtape. And um, uh, you know, I, I've sometimes said, if you want to know my most tangible contribution to this endeavor, um, I said, lose the mixtape. He was like, oh, I was like, lose the mixtape. Just call it Hamilton. It sounds more epic. And, and, uh, and he so, agreed. Um, sometimes when people do great things in early in their career or relatively early in their life, you're still relatively young, um, it's hard to top it. And now, how are you going to top the rest of your life what you did with Hamilton? Do you worry <laughs> about that? When I uh, was 31 years old, uh, I did Rent. And um, when Rent opened on Broadway, I know I did not have $10,000 in a bank account. I had no money. I had nothing. And uh, Rent started to um, bring uh, glory, wealth, and most importantly, satisfaction uh, to my profession. But um, there was a moment in which Rent was somewhere in between its off-Broadway run and its Broadway run. And uh, the then uh, op-ed columnist, he was a brand new op-ed columnist for the New York Times, Frank Rich, wrote one of those Saturday op-ed pieces about the power of Rent. And um, a very close friend called me up that Saturday morning and he said, well, did you see the op-ed? Well, well, how do you feel? You're never going to top this again. And, um, and that was Rent. And I didn't get too concerned about would I ever top it. And, and in fact, I thought probably I never will. But that didn't stop me from making Avenue Q. Or it didn't stop me from making In the Heights. It didn't stop me from making The Last Ship, which is a show I labored on with love. And, and it failed. And it was a crushing, sad failure that I'll always live with as well. That was the show that Sting wrote and performed in. And why do you think that didn't work? Um, I think that that show was a beautiful, poetic elegy to um, a dying town, a dying industry, to the loss of jobs, to the loss of local culture, to the loss of parental relationships, to the loss of romantic relationships. And um, it was too much. I don't think the audience wants to sit through a show that is about that much loss. But are you, you're, and by the way, all Monday morning quarterbacking, right? But you Hindsight. Could, you could spend the rest of your life on Hamilton. You could do more productions all over the world. You could do a movie. You could do books and so forth. Do you want not to spend the rest of your life on Hamilton, or do you really wouldn't mind spending 10 more years of your life on Hamilton? The truth of it is, is that um, I am always on to the next. Uh, it was um, the mogul David Geffen who literally said to me when I was working on Rent, it's all about your next show, Jeffrey. What's your next show? <sighs> but he was right. He was right. And um, you know, this coming season on NBC, 
uh, I'm going to be the producer of a TV show called Rise that's going to premiere in March. It's written by the great Jason Kadams, who was the uh, writer and showrunner of Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. And Rise was an idea that I had that is a show based upon a nonfiction book called Drama High by Michael Sokoloff. And Drama High is about an inspirational high school drama teacher named Lou Volpe, who spent over 30 years in Levittown, Pennsylvania at Truman High School. And this lower middle class high school um, with kids from families that are underemployed, unemployed, in blue collar jobs that are going away in the Rust Belt, um, lifted up his children, lifted up the high school, made drama at Truman High as powerful and as celebrated as football might be in Dallas, Texas. And um, I was so inspired by this book, I brought it to NBC and said, I think we can make a TV show about this. And uh, lo and behold, it'll be on, uh, on TV next March. So today, when I went to see Hamilton, I didn't get invited, not that I should have, backstage. Right. But I wonder, how do you decide who gets, everybody call up and say, I want to go backstage. How do you decide who gets to go backstage? Is there a backstage person who decides <laughs> that? Or how do you decide that? Um, David? The next time you come to Hamilton, I am inviting okay, you backstage. Okay, but how do you decide? The politicians call up and say, you "I want to go what? backstage." It's very or? easy. The truth of it is, is that uh, if you're the second cousin of the ensemble member that's on that night, you're going to be invited backstage. And um, if you are uh, Chief Justice Anthony Kennedy, you will also be invited backstage. And um, it. It's in a warm and embracing place for both um, friends uh, and family of the crew members um, and for um, special guests um, so, whom we revere. Okay, so now you have a Jewish mother? Uh, uh, the Seller family, my mother's Jewish, my father's Jewish, yes. Okay, so, um, Temple Israel of Detroit, Michigan is where I had my bar mitzvah. So is she, uh, she bragging to her friends all the time? And is she calling for free tickets? Or is she telling you how great you are? Is she tell you, oh, we knew, you knew, she knew you were going to be successful your whole life? What is she saying now? Um, oh, yeah. No, she's calling. But she knows now to call my assistant to ask for all the tickets. Okay. Um, for I think she's running a ticketing ring out of Detroit, okay. Michigan. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I wonder what surcharge she's taking. So um, there was some controversy when Mike Pence went during the transition yes. to, the, uh, to see Hamilton. And a statement was read, I guess, from the stage that you had approved. And then I guess- I didn't approve it. I wrote it. I wrote it. OK, you wrote it. All right. So um, did you think it would be controversial? And did you think it turned out to be much more controversial than it should have been? Or, and what was the thinking behind it? Um, it was a soul-crushing day at Hamilton the day after the election. Um, we, as a company, had to have a meeting the morning after the election, because it was a Wednesday. And um, on that Wednesday, we were going to, we, like all shows on Broadway, we're going to have to do two shows. And um, I had Mexican-American actors saying, I am afraid. I had. African-American actors say, well, now we know. They are not for us. Now we know, and let us um, govern ourselves accordingly. I had other actors say, fuck them. We are going to win through love. But 
I also had a costume uh, wardrobe person crying uncontrollably, I don't know what to do. And um, what was happening at our theater was happening in many places throughout Broadway and of course throughout the world, I mean throughout our country. And um, we had to figure out how do we get up and say, now our play is more important than ever before. And we need to tell this story. And we need to tell this story that embodies our greatest values as a country, as a community, as a democracy. And um, so we did that. And we got on with the work. And um, several weeks later, it was a Friday. I was trying to take, I was going to play hooky that day and go to a movie at 4 o'clock. I wanted to see that new Kenny Lonegren movie. And um, literally, I got out of the subway. I'm still taking the subway, David. Okay. Uh, Do you have bodyguards? <laughs> I don't have bodyguards. Although I felt like I might need them after that Pence event. <laughs> but uh, in any event, I got out of the subway and I got a phone call from uh, my COO. And she said, um, I need to tell you something. The Pence uh, team is called, and he wants to go to the show tonight. And what should we do? And you know what I said? Fuck. Like, I just didn't want to deal with it. I wanted to go to this movie. And so I said, well, we cannot deny this man a ticket. I'm not going to tell him it's sold out, because everybody knows we have tickets in our back pocket. And I said, sell him the tickets. And, and then I thought, what am I going to say to my actors? How are they going to go on and perform for this man? Because we know what he embodies. And um, I, so I got to the movie theater, and I uh, pulled out my iPhone, and I wrote that statement. And of course, it was three times as long. And, um, I said, uh, we're going to have to do this. And then I called Tommy, the director, and I was like, I know we're not going to do this, but let me just read this. To you. I said, Pence is coming tonight. What are we going to do? I want to read you something. I know we're not going to do this. Uh, Tommy is the, the, the clear-headed one in our group. And um, I read him that statement, and he said, wow, let's get Lynn on the phone. And Lynn was in London making Mary Poppins, too, with um, uh, Disney. So, uh, but it was five hours ahead, and within one second, me and Lynn and Tommy are on the phone, and I'm standing at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema. And uh, we read it to Lynn, and Lynn said, okay, let's start editing it. And then Lynn started adding and subtracting to it with his own uh, um, rhetorical flair. And, um, and the three of us made a decision right then and there, we are going to do this statement tonight. Okay. And, uh, and that's what happened, and, when, and I had no, and I, I knew it was going to, I said, yes, this is going to be the story if we do this on tomorrow, but it wasn't about getting a story. It was about us using this opportunity to say, look at us, we are here. Right. It was a form of active um, communication, maybe resistance. Now, the maximum number of times. And by the way, I want to tell you, and I'm proud of it. Okay. The maximum number of times that uh, somebody should see Hamilton, how many times, do people, I assume there are people who have seen it 10, 20 times or so forth, but you recommend everybody see it two, three, four, and five times, right? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that makes Hamilton so um, powerful 
and so rewarding is that with each viewing, you as an audience member will discover something else. And I think that that keeps us um, engaged. So if you haven't read the original book by Ron Chernow, I highly recommend it. It's about 732 pages, but it's an incredible book. And if you don't have time for that, um, you can buy this book, which I'm not the book agent for, but you will highly recommend this. This is a book that talks about the play and goes through all the, the lyrics and, and the history of it, right? Excellent book. You know what's funny about this book is that um, what, you know, once in a while a Broadway show is popular enough to get what is called a coffee table book. And um, uh, In the Heights was a popular show, but it wasn't popular enough to get a coffee table book. And um, my first show, Rent, had a beautiful coffee table look. And in all of the negotiations with Lynn over doing the show and royalties and you know, all that kind of stuff, there was only one issue that he was like a dog with a bone. Um, and this is, of course, before the show happened. It was like, we must get a coffee table book. We must get a coffee table book. I was like, what's with the coffee table book? <laughs> And um, uh, literally, there was a moment where we were still at the public theater, and it had become a hit. And David Brooks wrote a very nice uh, op-ed piece, so that, that got an op-ed piece as well. And um, I literally took that op-ed piece, and I walked over to my friend Charlie Melcher of Melcher Media, which is a fantastic book uh, packaging company. And I literally walked right into his office on 13th Street, and I said, here, this is our next coffee table book. And then we killed ourselves, um, because this book we um, started working on before we even opened on Broadway, and we got it from conception to the bookshelves before it even won the Tony Award for Best Musical. So uh, it was a labor of love and a lot of work. Final question before we have some questions from the audience. Uh, have you ever considered changing your name to Sellers? Because people often probably say Sellers. And you ever have that all the time? Well, you know, or? sometimes people um, uh, get so like, caught up in the mnemonic of it all, they actually call me Peter. So like, like, so I mean, it gets even worse, which is like, they, they not only do they mispronounce seller and say sellers, but then like, I'll be in a yoga class and they'll go Peter and they'll go, I don't even know why I said that. And I'm like, I do. Okay. Um, All right. Questions, who have, we have 15 minutes for questions right here. Can you explain the dynamic of how you assembled that cast and then talk a little bit about how you keep that cast together uh, as opposed to having them peel off? Excellent. You know? um, well, here's the truth. They do peel off. And um, there is, uh, there are, I think there's only one or two members of the original Broadway cast still performing on Broadway today. Um, they've all peeled off and gone on to do amazing things, and that is natural, and that is right and necessary. Um, putting together the original cast was um, both easy and pleasurable. Um, to give you a couple examples, um, Lynn and Tommy have had this freestyle group called Freestyle Love Supreme that does improvisational hip hop. And uh, they've been doing that for over a decade. And it was through Freestyle Love Supreme that they discovered David Diggs in San Francisco. And he lived in Oakland, and he did local theater in San Francisco, and he did some hip hop on his own. But that was about where his career was. And um, it was Tommy who said from the get-go, this guy is Thomas Jefferson. And David, who was from Oakland, we used to just you know, get him a, a ticket on JetBlue, and he would come to New York every time we did a reading to work and develop our show. So here was a man from Oakland, California that um, launched his beautiful career playing Thomas Jefferson and uh, Lafayette in Hamilton, won the Tony Award, and is now appearing in HBO movies and ABC sitcoms and um, writing his own albums. And, um, and, 
And that is one of the great pleasures of making a new show, which is discovering new talent and launching them off into the world. Um, we have Hamilton right now in three cities. That means I have um, nine men who can play Alexander Hamilton. Um, it means in uh, December, I'll have 12 men when we open at the uh, Victoria Palace Theater in London. And then when we open in Seattle next February, uh, I'll have 15 men. So our needs are vast. And um, our casting department is working every single day to continue to find extraordinary talent and young people to populate our stages. Uh, right here. I love Grand Opera, and one of the things that I love about it is that there are super titles. The uh, language and rhythm of and density of the language in hip-hop is often hard to pick out, and when I saw Hamilton, um, I was so engaged with it and yet frustrated by the fact that it was coming at me too fast for me to pick up what I wanted to um, hear and understand, and therefore, I was wondering if you'd ever consider doing, you know, at a theater such as the Windspear in Dallas or something, which allows for super titles, if you'd ever consider doing it that way. Uh, <laughs> it's a great, it, it, it's a great um, idea, and we won't do it because ultimately we'll rely upon the audience to make their own decision, and I hear this all the time, people say, should I listen to the CD before I come or should I wait until after I see it? And I say, I can't answer it for you. There are um, rewards with each mechanism. But because the CD is so readily available, one can listen to that first and start to familiarize themselves with all of the lyrics, um, or they can go back into the CD after. But um, the convention for it, um, for an opera that's in Italian or French, um, is a great thing. And I did that, in fact, when we did La Boheme on Broadway, the Baz Luhrmann production um, in 2002, where we did have those titles. But for this show, we decided it's not best for the style of the overall artistic expression. Hi. When I watched the show, it occurred to me that it was an incredible teaching tool to an audience that probably knew nothing or little about Hamilton. And my question is, do you know, is there any way to know how, what percentage of your audience had any sophistication about Hamilton? And if it is a teaching tool for adults, uh, most kids, certainly my grandkids, have all memorized the score. Have you thought about uh, maybe producing it in a different form so that it can be a teaching tool for younger people and hook them on history? Thank you for asking that question. Um, here's what we're doing. Uh, from the get-go, Lynn and Tommy and I made a commitment that we wanted to ensure that this was a powerful teaching tool for young people, and specifically, a powerful teaching tool for young people that would not otherwise be able to afford to see this play. Um, with the help of the Rockefeller Foundation, with the help of the Gilder Lehrman uh, Institute of American History, we have created an education program in which, for each one of our companies, 20,000 high school juniors studying American history um, see the show each year for $10 in a program that is supported by Rockefeller and a, um, uh, two handfuls of many other philanthropies. So what that means is that they study um, American history, they study the show, they work on projects prior to seeing the show, and then the day of the show, they actually come with their own um, 
um, presentations. They're, they make their own hip-hop songs. They make their own scenes. They make their own monologues. And um, some of them are chosen to come on stage in the morning in a session we, uh, in an educational session we have at the theater in which they can share this with all the other students in the audience. We will be serving 250,000 children from Title I schools over the course of the next four years uh, to see Hamilton for $10 or less. All right. Um, right, and speaking of children, do your own children treat, treat you differently now that you're more famous than oh, before? They could, they could care less. Really? They criticize me, they ignore me, you know, they'll, yeah. Welcome to the club. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, right here. Thank you for being so candid. Obviously, your career, you've been aligned with a lot of pro-social type of things within your work. I'm curious, how do you look for your next project and what qualities you use to identify what you'll align with and invest in? Thank you. Um, I'm all feeling. I want to be moved at the bottom of my soul when I witness a new work, and I want to be surprised. I want to hear a sound I've never heard in the theater before. And certainly that happened when I was exposed to rent for the first time. It certainly happened uh, in a different way when I was exposed to Avenue Q, which though the music was not surprising, the lyrics were making me fall off my chair laughing. Um, and then when I was exposed to Lynn's in the Heights for the first time, I had never before sat in a seat that would be a theater seat and heard this beautiful hip hop that Lynn was singing juxtaposed against traditional Broadway choral singing. And the way that he brought those together was completely surprising and moving to me. And that's why I did In the Heights. So um, Hamilton is a continuation of that, of that ability to both surprise us and to prick my ear in a whole new way. And, and I have one more question, which is open-ended and provocative. Will the show Hamilton do anything to help us sustain our democracy? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Jeffrey, thank you. Jeffrey Seller is the Tony Award-winning producer of Hamilton, Rent, and other productions. He was interviewed by David Rubenstein, co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group and trustee of the Brookings Institution. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.